morning, folks. It's time for Democratic Perspective, brought to you by the Verde Valley Independent Democrats, a weekly talk show about the crucial political issues facing the Verde Valley, Sedona, Northern Arizona, and the nation at large. Join us for a stimulating, thought-provoking discussion. You'll get the facts as we focus on the challenges facing everyone. Welcome to Democratic Perspective. Sitting across from me is Karen McCullen. Say hello, Karen. To Hi, the folks. everybody. <laughs> um, we have a really, I think, really good interview for you this morning with Professor uh, Andrew Basevich, who is a longtime critic of American foreign policy, a scholar who's written a whole bunch of books. He spent much of his life in the military in uh, armor um, and we'll be talking to him. But before that, I'm going to have to NPR you and uh, ask for money and donations and ask that you go to our website, vvid.org. It's also verdevalleyindependentdemocrats.org. Um, vvid.org. And there's a little donation button. And what would really help would be regular donations, even if they're small. If we could get monthly donations, and you can easily set that up on the program. Um, Democratic Perspective ga- uh, began on April 4th, 2011. We had our first show with an interview with um, uh, Representative Ann Kirkpatrick. Um, the, her opposition took a, a sentence that she said on the show and chopped off the second part of it and used it as the main attack on her uh, for the rest of her career. So um, we never got her back on after that happened. <laughs> but all right. So on on February, uh, I'm sorry, on May 13th, on Friday, May 13th. This is this is typical of Democrats. This is our when our fundraiser is. It's on Friday the 13th, from five to seven at El Portal in the wonderful, beautiful courtyard. There we'll have candidates and and some short speakers, and it's a great way to connect with other people. There'll be information on it on our website. Uh, again, I hate to take time from from this, but. Um, democratic perspective has survived for 11 years, but COVID really kind of did us in. We've, it, as people left the show and moved on or moved away or passed away, we always had fresh blood to keep us going. And COVID threw a, a ringer into that. We really do need your support. We will end in a couple of months if we do not get a, a, a some sort of show of support. You can go to our website or you can come to our um, fundraiser. Our fundraiser is always a lot of fun, um, beer and wine and uh, and sodas and and um, and, and speakers and uh, hors, hors d'oeuvres. So that's uh, Friday the 13th of May from 5 to 7 p.m. Um, so... Andrew Basevich, are you there? I am. I'm sorry about the introduction, but if we don't raise money, we're not going to be able to keep talking to you. Um, uh, Andrew Basevich, we interviewed you in, uh, interviewed him, I guess is the right phrase, in March uh, 8th of 2002. Um, his specialty is uh, international relations, relations, security studies, um, American foreign policy, 
Um, he's taught at Boston University and um, spent much of his career in the armor branch of the uh, U.S. Army. Um, he is um, was a Vietnam veteran. Uh, he's professor emeritus now and has written a whole series of interesting books after the apocalypse americans role in world in a world transformed is a is a fairly recent one also you can't us can't absolve itself from the responsibility for putin's uh, putin's uh, ukrainian invasion so Let's talk about Ukraine. You see the United States, if I understand it correctly, as having a lot of responsibility for for the war by being aggressive toward uh, Russia in terms of uh, uh, moving NATO countries close to it. Yeah, I, I wouldn't phrase it quite yeah. that way. And certainly I wouldn't want anybody to think that I'm trying to let Putin off the hook. Uh, you know, Russia invaded Ukraine. Ukraine is an innocent party. Uh, Russia is brutalizing Ukraine, and we, we should never uh, allow ourselves to overlook those facts. All of that said, uh, you know, wars occur in a historical context, and I think it's important for us to acknowledge the historical context that gave rise to this war. Uh, and I, I would describe that context this way. When the Cold War ended and the Soviet Empire and the Soviet Union itself collapsed, uh, Russia, the remnant of the Soviet Union, was in a, in a position of very considerable weakness. Uh, and the United States, and more broadly the West, exploited that weakness. We exploited it economically. We exploited it geopolitically. I think the most prominent expression of that exploitation was the eastward expansion of NATO up to Russia's borders and also incorporating uh, nations that had been part of the Soviet Union itself. Uh, it, was it, would be, it would be unrealistic uh, for any Russian leader, Putin or anybody else, uh, to see the West's behavior as anything other than, than hostile, than posing a threat. I under, fully understand why Lithuania or Poland or Latvia uh, would want to join NATO, join the EU, uh, and, and therefore enjoy prosperity and security. But I think it's important for us to stand, understand that that's not the way it looked from a Russian perspective. So in that sense, our actions were provocative, and, and that is one context in which to understand the response that Putin launched with this war. Um, right before the Soviet Union collapsed, I met and had long conversations with a, a bunch of Russian um, psychologists, business psychologists. They were stunned coming to the U.S., seeing whole libraries filled with books that they didn't have. Um, I got no feeling from them that they saw the United States and Russia as in some sort of super competition anymore. The feeling I got from them was that that was sort of over. Now, these are people who ended up, one of the guys ended up with a machine gun in, in the, the Russian White House uh, supporting Yeltsin. 
It's a long time ago, but I didn't get the feeling from many Russians that they saw us as their enemies anymore. Well, I think the end of the Cold War produced uh, an outpouring of naivete uh, here in the United States, in Europe, and and I'm guessing uh, in, in Russia itself. Remember all the talk about the end of history, uh, that something fundamental had changed when the Berlin Wall went down and the Cold War ended. Uh, I think that that attitude produced some false expectations in Russia, in Europe, certainly in the United States. And as those expectations have proven to be false, uh, then I think the result is disappointment, bitterness, anger, sense of being betrayed, uh, and and I think uh, Mr. Putin has exploited those uh, attitudes uh, among the Russian people, both in order to uh, cement his hold on power and also then to create a rationale for uh, the invasion of Ukraine that he has undertaken. The cost of this invasion, not only to Ukraine and Ukraine people who are suffering the most from it, but also to the to young Russians being sent to a war that I, that from our reporting, they didn't even know they were going to fight, and then their rage at finding that they have a determined enemy. Um, it's, a, it's a tragedy if nothing else. And the question was, would a less aggressive policy at the end of the Cold War, as the Soviet Union is breaking up, would that have prevented this? Or is, per, is Putin the kind of personality that was going to devolve into this conspiratorial thinking that we see in any case? It's no, sort of like... I'm not a psychologist. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I can't read Putin's mind, and I don't have the capacity to even guess how his his thinking might have been different had U.S. and Western policy uh, been different. So we, we, we can't know. What we do know uh, is that there were senior U.S. officials or seasoned observers of, of, uh, of international politics like George Kennan who warned that the eastward expansion of NATO was going to elicit a, a negative reaction from Russia, uh, so that there, there were warnings at the time from people, knowledgeable people, thoughtful people, arguably wise people, who said, don't do this, uh, and successive U.S. administrations chose to do it anyway. And again, I would emphasize, from the perspective of the European nations that had been part of the Soviet bloc or part of the Soviet Union, made all the sense in the world. Uh, but but I think we were foolish uh, to imagine that we could undertake this basically aggressive policy and not have Russia ultimately act uh, respond in a uh, in a hostile way. What what do you see now with the you know Sweden looking at reversing almost a century of being a, a neutral power in Europe? And Finland, with the with a long history of fighting Russians along its extremely long border with Russia, and the idea of, of of the expansion to those two countries, which have you know since the Second World War sort of been sort of you know non-aligned, 
on the NATO-Russia aspect? What do you say the effect of, of their joining NATO, assuming that that does happen? Well, I mean, the effect is going to be that NATO, what's, it, what's NATO got now, 30 countries? 30, that yeah. We, yeah. by treaty, are, are committed to defending? Yeah, something yeah. like so that. It's going to go up to perhaps 32 yeah. Uh, yeah. if Sweden and Finland join. So uh, NATO gets bigger. Uh, therefore, our obligations become broader. Uh, at the present moment, there is, uh, appears to be a willingness on the part of key European NATO members, like Germany, for example, to increase their own military spending so that Europe, does, Europe shoulders a bigger share of the burden than has been the case. It will be very interesting to see when we get a year or so past this war if the Germans and others are still willing uh, to increase their defense spending. I'm, I'm, I'm in the camp that says they'll probably begin to backtrack, and therefore the United States will continue to have to shoulder the burden of defending almost an entire continent that actually is capable of defending itself were the Europeans willing to do that. You know, we'll see how all that plays out, but I think that's a, that's a feasible scenario. To me, the biggest concern is that this war is going to uh, lead to a new quote-unquote Cold War uh, centered on a, frankly, exaggerated uh, Russian threat and therefore distract our attention from, uh, from concerns that ought to be more, that are more important. And, and I'm in the camp that says the climate crisis uh, probably ranks as number one. So we, we increasingly hear warnings issued by authoritative sources that say that the planet is not, that our nations, nations of the world, are not meeting their targets in order to limit the rise in temperatures and, and with suggesting dire consequences that are now just 20, 30, 40 years into the future. I think that that danger is much more serious uh, than any danger posed by Vladimir Putin. But to the extent that, that Putin now becomes the central sort of subject of national security discussions, then uh, efforts to address climate change will lag. Uh, and as a result of that, I think we're going to be in deep trouble come uh, you know, 20 or 30 years from now. Yeah, it's shifted the discussion to this. The idea, I guess, is fundamentally you can't have a nuclear-armed country like Russia run by Vladimir Putin and, and have security unless you set up massive opposition to it. In other words... Russia, Putin are a danger to the entire world, and he has threatened to use nuclear well, but, weapons. But, but hold, hold on a second. Hold on a second. Mm -hmm. You know, if, if the Russian army had overrun Ukraine in a matter of days, which is clearly what they expected to do, then what you just said might bear serious consideration. But the Russian army has failed to overrun Ukraine, despite enormous efforts. We, we don't know what Russian casualties are. They appear to be very substantial. Russia just lost the flagship of their Black Sea fleet, sunk. Uh, so, so by any, I think, 
a practical measure, Russia does not pose a military threat to Europe. I mean, if they can't, if they can't conquer Ukraine, what makes us think that they could conquer Poland or Germany or any of the rest of the countries uh, in, in, uh, in, in, uh, in NATO? So I think we need to try to be realistic about what the war tells us about the Russian threat. I think that's a really interesting point. I do know that uh, the polls that I've talked to in the past about Russia are extremely afraid of Russia and um, very, very anti-Russian. They were anti-Soviet even even while they were part of the Soviet Union, and they and they see this as a as a existential threat to them. They see a revival of Russian power. And if Russia was able to conquer the Ukraine, they would be even stronger. Now that but they you, did conquer Ukraine. I know, point, isn't it? Um, and, and they're now under the most horrific sanctions that have been imposed on any nation in memory. Uh, so again, the notion that, that Russia is a great power that poses a threat to others, it seems to me, is unsustainable, even if we just, the merest glance at the facts. They certainly have, they certainly misunderstood um, what happened in, in Ukraine, and I'm not sure I've read discussions by some of Putin's advisors and former advisors of how they viewed the whole thing. Um, but I never met a Ukrainian who, if I thought they were Russian, if they, I would say, uh, you know, something, they said, well, I'm from St. Petersburg, but I'm Ukrainian. They always had a different identity, and I think you can see that expressed in what happened um, when the Russians invaded. Oh, I am I am sure that were I ethnically Ukrainian, I'm not, but were I ethnically Ukrainian, I would I, I would hold Russia in great contempt uh, and I would I you know would would probably totally dislike Vladimir Putin. But you know, I'm not Ukrainian. I'm I'm an American and it seems to me it's important for us to uh, evaluate the circumstances objectively, uh, rather than allowing the attitudes of others to inform how we should interpret uh, the facts of international politics. So how would you, I, we really don't know what American policy is going to end up being toward Russia. Uh, it's very punitive now. What would you see that would be a better policy than the direction we seem to be going? Because we have well, people think, going from neutrality the, to... The punitive policy is, is necessary and justified. Uh, I think the big question is, how do we unwind this? This war is going to end someday. I don't know if it's going to end in two weeks or six months or two years. Uh, but the war will end, and when it ends, Russia is still going to be Russia. Russia is still going to be this massive country that has to be part of an international order that has any approximation of peace. So there will be a, a very immediate question how to unwind the pariah status, how to bring Russia back into the international order. Uh, and that's really going to be difficult. And it's going to be more difficult because of the uh, Russophobia uh, that you referred to a couple of minutes ago, which I think is a very real phenomenon. 
Now, there is a widespread dislike uh, of, of Russia in the West. I think it probably carries over uh, from the Cold War. It may even carry over from the Bolshevik Revolution of, of, of more than 100 years ago. Uh, but there is this dislike or disdain or mistrust of Russia, and I think that the existence of that attitude is probably going to make it more difficult for us to figure out how to deal with Russia once this war ends. But we have to deal with Russia. It's not going to go away. Do you see how we should do that, or is that too far in the future? Um, how we would? What, what's the correct way to deal with Russia? What's the best approach if when the war ends? Because, well, as you, you say, know, it's going to end sometime. The question is, who, is who's going to be in charge? <laughs> Uh, yes. You know, the president, I think, unwisely, our president, unwisely indicated that uh, Putin needs to be removed from power. Uh, the effect of that probably was to make Putin more determined than ever just to continue the war. Uh, but it's a, it's, a, it's a real question. When the war ends, who's going to be calling the shots in the Kremlin? If it's Putin, uh, then it will become ten times more difficult to figure out a way to bring Russia in from the cold. If it's not Putin, uh, if it's somebody who, who we can deal with, uh, then, then I think that makes the problem orders of magnitude uh, easier. And I certainly am not in a position to predict whether Putin is going to remain in power after this war. I'm not able to predict if Putin uh, left the scene under whatever circumstances, who would who would succeed him? You know, would would that person be any more agreeable to the West than Putin himself? I don't know. So those are huge unknowns, but those are those are unknowns that really will uh, directly affect the question of whether or not we're going to be able to figure out how to way to uh, to establish some kind of working relationship with Russia after hostilities end. I guess let's go back to the collapse of the Cold War. And there's a, a really great uh, uh, woman who's written, um, I'm going to, Alexandrovich, I think, I, Alexevich, uh, who I read her book of interviews with Russians. And there was this tremendous nostalgia that she reports in the Soviet Union for, for I'm sorry, for nostalgia for the Soviet Union, for the feeling that the collapse of the Soviet Union, however bad, Russia became just a small power after that. And it was a blow to Russian pride, which I, it seems to me that Putin has certainly played on. Um, but the problem I see is this, how we can't give Russia what it wants. It's never going to be or it's unlikely to be anytime soon the great world power that it was when it was the Soviet Union and when it was the U.S. against and its allies against the Soviet Union. That nostalgia, I, I just don't think there's a way to um, to deal with it. I mean, it's just something that I think will, will pass away as as people die off. But um, but she's very clear that the end of the Soviet Union in Russia was seen by different people in very very different ways. 
And we're seeing Putin's, uh, to me, is, is extreme of seeing it as a disaster. In fact, he's, we know he said that it was the great disaster of world history, the collapse of the Soviet Union. Um, well, if, I, 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 you know, again, I'm not a Russia expert. I don't live in Russia. I have read that, and it strikes me as very plausible, uh, and it's not unique. You know, how, how long did fantasies of the lost cause survive in the former states of the Confederacy uh, after 1865? Uh, and that nostalgia uh, had, had a political significance uh, that took generations uh, to, to recede and, even, and, and, and exists even today. Uh, my wife and I drove down to uh, Florida uh, six or eight weeks ago, take a little break, and, and you can still see along I-95 uh, people who fly the flag of the Confederacy uh, as a, a statement of their unhappiness, uh, their, their nostalgia uh, with the way things have turned out. So it, it doesn't surprise me in the least if there is a nostalgia for the Soviet Union among among some Russians. So where do we go from here? The, your answer is, I think, that we don't know because we don't know how this war is going to end and we don't know when it's going to end. And if we don't know uh, whether Putin is going to stay in power in a smaller country, you know, forgive me, but the generals would think he's gotten them a, a bunch of their people killed. Uh, they'd be pretty angry and, and take out a, a, a smaller dictator in some other country. I don't think that that structure is there in, in, in Russia. But Putin's done something really bad, really, really bad for Russians. And right now they're all supporting him, but that could change very easily. But if he is there, is there an approach, a general approach, maybe maybe there isn't, that we could do to make sure that we don't make the same mistakes we made in dealing with the, the end of the Soviet Union with Russia when this war is over? Well, I think the place to begin is for us to acknowledge that Russia has legitimate security interests. You know, in some senses, this war occurred because of an unwillingness on the part of the United States and the West to acknowledge Russian security interests as defined by Putin. Now, Putin wanted guarantees that Ukraine would not join NATO. In effect, he wanted a guarantee that Ukraine would remain part of a Russian sphere of influence. In other words, uh, a buffer mm -hmm. uh, between Russia itself and the West. Uh, we were not willing to even consider uh, that arrangement, and in my judgment, that's one of the reasons why uh, Putin foolishly and recklessly uh, decided to embark upon this war. Well, when the war ends, we're going to have some, some version of the same question. Uh, Russia is a vast country. It, it's, a, it's a country that is going to have uh, an adversarial relationship with the West, but that doesn't mean that Russia has no legitimate security interests. So we need to find a way to, to talk to the Russians and to come to some common understanding of, of, what those, of, of what those interests are and how they can be recognized. You know, we were speaking a few minutes ago about 
Finland and Sweden, uh, uh, Sweden possibly joining NATO. Well, I'm, I'm sure that there will be people who will insist that, therefore, we need to have a, a U.S. armored division uh, sitting in Finland from now until the end of time. To do that, of course, would antagonize the Russians. Uh, so there's going to be, a, ought to be, a lot of thinking about what type of posture the United States and NATO uh, assume after the Ukraine war that will both provide for the security of the European members of NATO and will also avoid unnecessarily anti antagonizing the Russians. I think that's going to require a lot of diplomacy, a lot of thought. It's going to be very difficult, but I think that's going to be one thing that's going to be necessary. It'll be easier to do that if Putin is not in power. It'll be very, very difficult to do it if he is in power. On some of these, you've also got, you know, you talked at the beginning about the sort of historical context, you know, of, of this as sort of a European issue and some of the issues. And the U.S. for 100 plus years has maintained a policy. We haven't always carried it out or really put our money where our mouth is about sort of self-determination of peoples. And the idea, and that was sort of a, a conflict that's gone on since the end of the Cold War, that Russia has legitimate security concerns on wanting sort of buffer states, but the people living in those buffer states, Poland, the Baltic Republics, Ukraine, you know, we also have a right to decide for themselves, do they want to be that buffer state, or would they prefer to be an integrated economic part of Europe? And then, so we've had this sort of conflict between, you know, what our philosophical sort of goals of how we view ourselves yeah, versus... But, but I mean, yeah. that, that part's been decided, right? Yeah. I mean, Poland is part of yeah, NATO. But Poland I guess it's is part of the EU. Yeah, but so I mean, the, I don't think there's anybody anybody suggesting that that's going to be uh, reversed. No, but you're just talking about the like you can see from Putin's point of view that a security concern, but from you know the theoretical or philosophical American point of view, maybe the European point of view is that the you know those countries had you know, a right to decide that they didn't that they did not want to be this buffer state that you know so it's it's not just our foreign policy. I'm, so, I'm not questioning that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, again, if I were if, if I yeah. were a Pole, uh, I would have wanted to join the EU and I would have yeah. wanted to join NATO. I think it's perfectly understandable. Yeah. So that uh, so that sort of desire. We have, to, we have to look at the situation from the other guy's point of view. Uh, if we if we if we can't do that, no. But uh, I'm, with some amount yeah. of empathy, yeah. of understanding then it seems to me effective diplomacy yeah. becomes impossible. Well, when if, I was... our, if our attitude is basically, and this, this was the attitude, I think, prior to the start of the war, if our attitude is we don't give a darn, uh, Putin, how you define Russian security interests, that's not our problem, uh, then I think that that uh, leads to antagonism and can uh, inadvertently, because certainly it was inadvertent on the part of the West, can inadvertently encourage the kind of aggressive behavior that have brought us to where we are. I guess I, I see that the United States was uh, at the psychological, pretty psychological, was extremely insensitive to Russian concerns after the breakup of the Soviet Union. But when I look at Putin, I'm not sure that if we had been a lot better in handling it, we wouldn't have ended up with Putin, and Putin wouldn't have 
headed in the direction where he's ended up. Um, certainly, you know, when you have conspiratorial theory uh, theories and conspiratorial thinking, it's really hard, in in my experience, to to undo that. Um, and when you have someone like Putin getting the power, I mean, I think things could have ended up ended up better if we hadn't ended up with Putin, but we did. And so, I guess my 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 thing is is like even if we had been really nice to the Soviet Union, put it in in a personal term, I'm not sure that with Putin in charge we would have ended up in any different place. Do you think we would have if we had been more sensitive to Russian security? You're asking me to peer into a crystal ball. (laughs) Yeah, of course. Of course, you're being interviewed. We always do that. It is, I think, a a historical fact that, that the United States told the Soviet leadership, this is before the breakup of the Soviet Union, uh, that NATO would not expand eastward beyond its existing boundaries in 1989. Uh, now, the Russians, rather stupidly, didn't get that written down in an agreement, but they certainly believed that there, there had been a commitment on the part of the United States not to expand NATO eastward. We did it anyway. Uh, and to some degree, not, and this is not for a second, trying to let Putin off the hook. But to, to some degree, we're living with the consequences of that decision to discard the commitment we had made to the Soviets and expand NATO eastward to the, to the Russian border. Uh, you know, and not, you know, we're living with the consequences. We don't like the consequences. But I guess, like I was saying, it would be hard to sort of sit there from our sort of philosophical viewpoint and to sort of have told Lithuania, Estonia, Latvia, Poland that, no, you can't join when it was the desire of those countries to do that. We would have put our, I know, the outcome might have been different, but we would have put ourselves in a a very strange position as a country that sort of, in theory, supports everyone's self-determination. To yeah, choose well, their in own theory, yeah, and yeah, that's sort of been our philosophical theory that we would go on. We would have put ourselves in a, in a strange position to have told you know those nations, no, you can't join because the Russian needs you to well, be I a, think, a I mean, neutral I think country. You're putting your finger on on yeah. in in some senses what is the essential issue. So, what comes first, uh, giving a green light to nations? to exercise that right to self-determination and and to pursue their dreams of becoming a liberal democracy, on the one hand, or of trying to take into account the legitimate security interests of a large state with an adversarial bent. Basically, we opted for the former, we ignored the latter, and now we're living with the consequences. Uh, you know, we made a choice. We're living with the results of the choice. Let's again, turn it. I want to emphasize Go ahead. that does not let Russia off the hook. Right. Let's turn to climate change. You say that climate change, and if you turn on the news, it's easing a bit now. Uh, but when I turn on the news, originally it was Ukraine, Ukraine for the whole whatever it was hour. And, uh, and then the hour after that would be on it again. Um, what other issues besides climate change are getting lost in this? And 
And in terms of climate change, how can we refocus people on the importance? Because climate change is so diffuse in a lot of ways that it just fades in the background if you don't keep it in serious focus. I mean, I think the answer is keep it in serious focus. I mean, the 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 media has. I mean, it's understandable, in in the sense that here here is the biggest war to happen in Europe uh, since since 1945. It turns out to be an ugly war, a long war, uh, and in that sense, it's it's not surprising that people in the news business want to go report the news. I mean, I get it. You know, if I were the if I were the the person running the New York Times, I would have made the same response that that person did. Let's send a whole bunch of reporters over there to see what's going on. That said, uh, there is you know there there is a larger context here uh, that deals with changes in the planet, uh, and you know how how do, how do we refocus? How how do we how do we respond to the problem of Ukraine? Uh, sucking up all the media attention. Uh, I think it's that those of us who have a chance to speak or to write uh, push back against that tendency, you know, make the argument that there are other issues that are demand attention apart from uh, Ukraine. That's not an argument to ignore Ukraine. It is an argument to try to get better balance uh, in, in, the, in the overall media coverage. Uh, no easy solutions, but it seems to me that's what has to be done. Yeah, and uh, climate change is, it's always struck me as the most difficult issue. I don't know if it strikes you that way because it affects basically almost everyone, although not equally. I mean, if you're in a low-lying country in Central America, you're going to see problems much sooner than if you're in Switzerland. Uh, but um it's because it's so diffused and because the actions we have to take are kind are as, as I think you know uh, are inconvenient uh, being an environmentalist and being sensitive to the environment and what it takes is inconvenient and uh, dealing with climate change is expensive I mean we're you know we're spending billions of dollars in Ukraine but um, are we going to be able to rouse people in nearly the same way about climate change, or are we just going to wait till it kind of washes over us? Well, again, I, my crystal ball is a little bit on the, kind of cloudy today, uh, but I would say that it will become easier to get people's attention to climate change when it becomes too late, as it were. Yeah. That's right. You know, when the, when, when the, when the waters are, you know, knee-deep in, in uh, Miami Beach, it'll be easy to persuade Floridians that this is a serious problem. Uh, unfortunately, our political establishment doesn't tend to, uh, you know, look, look out more than about, well, look out further than the next election. Uh, and so there's, there's not a lot, lot of political will uh, to deal with problems that, that may still be a generation away before they they uh, fully uh, bite. And we may that see, may well be the, the tragedy of, yeah. uh, of the 21st century. Well, we may see out here in our area, you know, the uh, Colorado River, Lake Mead, Lake Powell, are at a crisis point, and very soon, within a year or so, there may be no electricity generation. 
the waters will fall, which will have an immediate effect upon well, that, energy that prices in Nevada, California, Arizona, and that may be sort of a, you know an initial wake-up call that we that people have been talking about you know warming and drought for years, but that's you know is that's just inches away almost from happening. Well, and I'm you know yeah. I'm talking to you from Massachusetts. Yeah. We have a different situation here, but certainly I follow the news of the of the wildfires in the Pacific Coast, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, and uh, that would seem to be a serious wake-up call. I'm, I'm not in a position to say how that has changed people's attitudes, but, wow, you know, what, what do you want before you start paying attention? Well, you know, people's wells are going dry. It gets hotter and hotter every year. Um, Right now, I think in, in, in knowing people in, in Phoenix is that they just solve all the problems with air conditioning. You know, <laughs> air conditioned car, air conditioned house, right. air conditioned business. You drive into a covered parking lot. I mean, you can survive the fact that it's going to be over a hundred degrees, Karen, for what? Uh, Six months? Yeah, just about Six months? Phoenix. Yeah. It's already been 100 there, I think, this year. Yeah. So I, people just sort of cope, but that doesn't mean that they're dealing with underlying causes. And That's correct. Yeah. I think, I mean, I do think what it comes down to is, uh, well, what do I know? But, I mean, uh, we, we will not remediate the, the climate crisis without serious shared sacrifice imposed on the American people. Uh, and our culture is such that we, we, we're not into shared sacrifice. It would seem uh, too we're, that we're, in, we're into exercising yeah. privileges and rights. I've also uh, heard a, a and, number. And I, our, our politicians, of course, don't have yeah. the gumption uh, to to, yeah. uh, to tell constituents that sacrifice is is in order. Yeah. I've heard a lot of discussion, like you know, with the the role of the UN. The UN obviously cannot solve an armed conflict very well, but the UN, in its you know, existence, has done a better job on other international things. It would seem that people want to sort of write off the UN because it can't solve the what's going on in Ukraine. But the UN does have possibly a, a bigger role in solving things like climate change, where international cooperation is more likely. Then and, and trying, you know, the UN really can't. They, they can't end a, a physical war, but they could do yeah, a lot I, on I mean, these I, other I think issues. The UN yeah. educates. Yeah. Uh, you know, the UN highlights. The UN warns. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, to, in my view, you are correct. They're not going to solve problems. They're certainly not going to uh, offer an effective solution to an international conflict like the Ukraine war. Uh, we've been talking. We've run out of time to uh, Andrew Basevich. He's um, Wow, I mean, he's got a great, great resume. He's the president of the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. He has a whole long history of uh, involvement in international affairs, um, both directly and in uh, in teaching about it and in managing entire research institutes. Uh, we want to really thank him for being with us today. He's a historian, writer, professor, colonel in the retired in the in the military um, and he has brings a unique perspective to foreign policy uh, we'd like to thank uh, Democrats of the Red Rocks 
and the Yavapai Democratic Party for their support. We really appreciate it. The fundraiser again, folks, I have to talk about fundraisers. The fundraiser is May 13th, Friday the 13th, from 5 to 7 in the beautiful courtyard of the El Portal Hotel. Um, drinks and hors d'oeuvres and speakers and talk. It's a great place to meet people and, and connect with people that you don't see in other organizations because of the nature of our show being on the air. It brings in people who are not members of a, a local political group. So I think you'll find it really interesting. Um, again, I'd like to thank uh, Professor Basevich being with us. This interview with uh, with him is going to be available as a podcast starting tomorrow. Please, uh, if you if you know anybody who missed it, tell them about the podcast and have them tune in. VVID.org. We're also on Facebook. You've been listening to Democratic Perspective, brought to you by the Verde Valley Independent Democrats, a weekly talk show focusing on the political issues facing the Verde Valley, Sedona, Northern Arizona, and our nation at large. Catch us every Monday morning after the 8 a.m. news, right here on AM 780 KAZM. It's beautiful out there, folks. Have a great day.